Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACM's Nurse Leadership and Innovation Training Program, Clinical Scene Investigator Academy, with information available at aacn.org forward slash academy. Now, here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barden. Hi, this is Connie Barden, Chief Clinical Officer at the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, AACN, and I'm thrilled today to be here with Dr. Nancy Blake, Chief Nursing Officer at LA County USC Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. One of the things we're going to talk about leading during a crisis happened when you're actually CNO over at UCLA Medical Center. So feel free to bounce back and forth, share experiences from either place. And uh, I'm just so glad to have you here. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to chat with you. Really want to pick your brain about leadership during a crisis. And I got to tell you, few people uh, know this topic better. And you have certainly been living it because at the time we were recording this, we were just uh, a little bit more than a year past COVID inception. And uh, you really have been living it because of the surge in LA. You all have been right in the heart of it. So um, we'll talk about that. But in general, one of the things I happen to know about you, Nancy, is that you have a lot of disaster management experience, not just global pandemics, but you've done a lot in your very long and storied career as a nursing leader. So why don't we start off? Can you talk a little bit about various kinds of disaster management experiences that come to mind when you think about that topic? Sure. When I was in grade school, the um, Silmar earthquake hit. And my mom actually worked at the hospital that was destroyed. Um, It happened at six o'clock in the morning, but it was a time I'll never forget. Um, camping outside because none of us felt comfortable going into our house. So when I got a job as a nurse, uh, one of the first things they asked for volunteers, uh, I worked at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and they did annual uh, what we call tri-hospital drills uh, with Kaiser Permanente, which was across the street, and Hollywood Presbyterian, which was behind us. And so I got involved um, probably in the mid-80s doing disaster preparedness for hospitals, getting to know the Joint Commission standards and really being involved. And I was there for 35 years. So, you know, I ended up being put forward for some national committees um, and even working with people on the National Pharmaceutical Stockpile list. Um, And looking at that list, there were adult diapers and adult formula, but coming from a children's hospital, there weren't any (laughs) pediatric diapers and formula and all the medications said can't be used in pediatrics. And the guy from the FDA said, well, they've never been researched in pediatrics. And I said, but we use these drugs all the time. So I actively involved in um, sometime between 2011 and 2013, I was invited by the mayor's office, LA mayor's office, to participate in a White House pandemic meeting in downtown LA. So consider this is probably, you know, 2012, 2013. We talked about what a pandemic was, and I have to say exactly what happened. How it happened is exactly what we should prepare for. But avian flu came and went, and I threw out those binders when I moved last time, six years ago, thinking, I'm not going to see this in my lifetime. Wow. So I felt prepared for what to expect for the first few months, but to go through it for a year 
and really be hit as hard as we were hit in December and January, I was not prepared. And I wasn't prepared to lead an organization through this. I cannot even imagine, and and I want to hear more about that. That's incredible. I actually had forgotten about that. You had been part of so many things on the federal level. Very interesting in a White House meeting that you were there to advise. So I can't wait to learn more. But related, kind of, one of the things I also know about you is about all of your vast experience um, implementing, not just being a scholar of, but implementing the AACN Healthy Work Environment Standards, Skill Communication, collaboration, recognition, authentic leadership, et cetera. You know, and in fact, your doctoral dissertation was related to the relationship of healthy work environments and nurse patient outcomes. So you certainly are an expert in that regard and a scholar as well. So hopefully as we chat, we can kind of marry the two because I'm very interested in learning how you've observed the two are connected. Mm-hmm. Going back to, to what you were saying in terms of how could one ever prepare themselves for this? So when you when you look at how this went down, how would you say disasters really are the most disruptive to what's going on, the work environment or the people or, you know, whatever comes to mind for you? What really are some of the things that take a toll so much that a leader has to deal with? The staff are not only worried about themselves, but they're worried about their family, whether it be an earthquake, a fire, a tornado. Um, I remember when I was on the board, you know, just talking to those people because we had just been in New Orleans for the NTI and talking to those people the following year who their phones had died, they had no power, and they didn't know if their house was still standing or how family was doing. And I think with this pandemic, people were so concerned about bringing it home to their family, you know, taking their clothes and going into their house. and, And potentially there was so much unknown about this disease that they were concerned about that. And at the very beginning, um, you know, the PPE, just not knowing what PPE and CDC changed their recommendations the first couple of months, you know, every week it was something different. And we needed to develop trust with our staff. And so, you know, what I think was first and foremost, the most important was effective communication, you know, which is one of the big healthy work environment standards and transparency. Because, you know, I rounded for the better part of the last year and met with staff unit to unit and they were scared. I could see it in their face when we decided this is an old building. Um, You know, it was built in 1960. We're planning for a new building that'll be available in five or six years. But most of the ICUs are ward ICUs. They're not private rooms. And for a pandemic, it doesn't work. You know, we had to work with the staff to help fit up a a newer ED, 21 of those beds in the ED that were private rooms. But we also talked about PPE. You know, we took over one of the ICUs, the medical ICU, and we met with the staff and said, this is going to be the COVID ICU because they're all private rooms. Now, are you saying also you took over an ER and made it into an ICU? uh, The acute emergency department, um, 21 of those rooms because they had negative pressure, they had enough room for a ventilator, they had breakaway glass doors, but they were small for an ICU, but we could go into isolation because, you know, once we got to, you know, 10, 15 patients, we needed uh, more. We have 11 isolation rooms in our ICUs currently. 
eight rooms in our medical ICU and then two in our trauma and another um, surgical ICU, we have one private room. So beyond that, we had to go into the acute emergency department, take over 21 rooms and uh, move the some of the ED patients out. Although uh, during the first couple of months, the census went down because people were locked down at home and we had to get the staff to help us fit it up. You know, what do you need to run this as an ICU? We closed our six bed CCU and took that staff and moved them downstairs. And then the other ICUs, we took the available staff to help us fit up, but lots of conversations because they were scared. And, you know, when we changed our policy, somebody brought me to the the computer and said, look at the CDC. Now they're saying you can wear scarves. (laughs) You're listening to them. Um, And, you know, we're part of a large healthcare system, Department of Health Services, of which there's four hospitals and hundreds of community clinics um, that spread all over LA County. And so we were going with the best science possible and pooling all our resources. So we made sure we had enough masks and gowns and gloves and everything else that we needed. It was transparency to the staff. If I didn't know something, I said, I don't know. We're doing the best we can. But I think the most important thing was not to fake it. Just let them know that we don't know the answer. You know, we're calling up and I, Liz Bridges, you know, our president sent a lot of information from Washington and all of our plans were based around stuff that they had put together at University of Washington. Yeah, and so I, there's, there's, there's your true collaboration if we're, if we're looking at it from... Uh, well, and true collaboration, especially December and January, when our ICUs, we have 42 ICU beds, when our ICUs went to 200% capacity, the docs started taking over, the orthopedic surgeons were the proning team. And then the night shift, we had some residents that did proning. Even in the emergency department, I was down there in scrubs helping. Um, We had um, ER residents and fellows taking the radio calls because the MICNs were busy taking care of patients and helping with whatever was possible. You know, whatever we needed, they were doing triage, doing bedpan. And we redeployed all of our staff from the clinics, from the trauma office, And so the ICU nurses were working together with this team. Um, And I had been here for a year beforehand and really tried to focus on healthy work environment standards and appropriate staffing. We did not have the appropriate staffing at one point. Sure. Uh, But we were able to get Department of Defense nurses and state nurses from other states through our state um, to supplement our um, critical care. In one little conversation, I think we've touched on all of the standards, that's for sure. But but one of the things, before I forget, I want to ask you, you are truly one of the most authentic leaders that I know, always have been. I mean, I saw some of your TV spots when COVID was going crazy and so forth. And it just made me proud, frankly, to have you as my friend and colleague. But um, you mentioned being there in scrubs, but I heard you were there like seven days a week for who knows how many days. And tell me about that experience for you. Because what I'm hearing is you have to be with the nurses, look them in the eye and hear what's important. What was that like for you? I mean, day after day after day. The first eight weeks, um, we were preparing in February. We got our first patient um, March 6th or 7th. I can't remember. Um, And it was a nursing home 
nurse's aid. And then we ended up getting more staff from nursing homes. So it was kind of our own club we were getting these patients from. I knew that I had to be here day and night. So, you know, I rotated my shifts, but I didn't take a day off for the first eight weeks because I didn't feel I could. But I made sure that I was here for both day and night, that I was able to hear their concerns because that was probably the most important thing to them is that their voice was heard. At times they were angry. At times they were sympathetic. They understood that we were doing the best we could. And uh, between the COO, the CEO, and I, we did nothing but round for a long time. And the chief medical officer um, to, to let them know that we were here, that we were willing to do whatever they needed us to do. Um, and we were following up on all of their concerns. And the concerns a lot had to do with their scrubs that they were wearing to work. So we got scrubs that we washed here. They wanted to leave their shoes here. They all had lockers. They could leave their shoes here because people were saying that their husbands and wives had set up this little showering station in the garage. So they didn't bring anything into their house because at the time we knew enough, but we didn't know enough. You mentioned science. I heard that science is truth as we know it for now, (laughs) because things were changing so often. And as you, you alluded they to, were. anger at the CDC changing and, and all kinds of other things. It's understandable. Well, in trying to get cappers and pappers, when the whole country was trying to get cappers and pappers, and knowing that, you know, we wanted everybody to have them, but they weren't available. So we had to set up processes and, um, and you know, who could wear them and when and um, make sure that we had enough N95s and you know, at times we had to change manufacturers. So we had to refit test everyone and our professional development staff and our administrative staff were helping with fit testing. So just making sure that people were wearing the appropriate PPE, that they knew how to don and off, frankly, just going around and hearing their concerns and making sure we were sharing their concern through the Department of Health because there was a, a morning huddle that all the um, chief nursing officers, chief medical officers, CEOs, CMOs, and and, um, DHS leadership was on. Our uh, value analysis team was doing what they could to get whatever supplies they could that were FDA approved to be used. So we worked together, came together as a system. But I think it really, we really coalesced as an organization. There was a great respect of the different groups of people. I mean, we didn't have enough respiratory care practitioners. So we were looking at the ACN materials. So the physicians and nurses could learn a little bit more about what we could do so they could go to every four hour, you know, ventilator checks or do a little bit less of the um, treatments and things like that, that that could be done by the nurse who was already in the room because we were trying to keep people out of the room uh, as much as possible. So Nancy, I'm just amazed when I think about what this time must have been like for you and no days off for eight weeks, working day and night in scrubs right there, elbow to elbow with your staff. But you've been at this now for a year. So what are some things you've put in place to really take care of yourself? Because to use the the worn out phrase, it certainly has turned into a marathon and not a sprint. And I think one key thing for leaders is taking care of themselves. So is there anything you want to share with us about that? I do. And and that's a term that I kept telling my clinical directors, you know, we're in this for the long haul. I found that I'm a 
kind of late, stay up till 11 o'clock, watch the news. I would go to bed. I would be in bed by 9, 30, 10 o'clock because I knew, I mean, I was physically and emotionally exhausted, but I knew I needed to get sleep. I knew I needed to eat well. My husband's retired and he's a great cook. And I said, I need to eat healthy. You know, it was so easy to open a bag of chips and eat half the bag of chips because it was such a stressful time. But um, I was getting my steps in because I was rounding. I would spend eight, 12 hours rounding. Um, But I knew I needed to get sleep. I signed Harbor up for Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation right before the pandemic hit. Um, And, you know, looked at that, looked at the, some of the exercises you're doing, you know, I downloaded the Calm app and did the breathing exercise, meditation, just those things that I had to understand that this time I had to take care of myself too, because I couldn't have made it um, through the entire time. If I wasn't getting enough sleep, eating well, and, um, and the exercise, the gyms were closed, but I was getting 10,000 to 20,000 steps a day just from walking around this large campus. So sign of a consummate leader and a consummate professional taking care of others, but also knowing, having the wisdom to take care of yourself. So thanks for sharing about that. Yeah. Um, Let me ask you, you've made it really clear that your leadership team really being present and listening and establishing trust, being transparent, saying, I don't know when we don't know, really helped you identify what the staff needed. But there must have been times when you had to also prioritize. So like you said, we don't have enough staff. We don't have enough N95s. We don't have enough this or that. So how does a leader in a situation like this, or leaders, plural, come together and decide, well, here's how we're going to manage sort of this resource challenge that we're having right now? Any examples come to mind around that? I remember vividly, um, it was the week between Christmas and New Year's, and Harbor got hit that surge a little bit harder than the rest of the system. I was in the ER trying to help and paramedics were kept bringing patients in. They kept coming and they were telling us that the local hospitals, some of the smaller community hospitals, it was scary what was going on there and that they felt that the patient needed to be here because they knew we could handle it. But it got to a point where I called the CMO and I said, uncle, raised my hands and said, we don't have the staff to take any more patients. And I know that a couple of the other hospitals have some beds and they have a little bit more staff. So can we transfer some of these patients out? And we ended up having a call with the CEOs at 10 o'clock at night. Um, and they agreed to accept uh, about five to 10 patients who were waiting in the ED for inpatient beds. And it really helped as a pop-up valve. You know, I have to say that was the darkest week of my career. Yeah. Because um, I was in scrubs and I haven't been at the bedside and I could do so much. Um, but I couldn't fix the problem and I couldn't lock the door. Sure. And the patients that were walking and being triaged were satting at 50%. So, you know, even though they weren't coming by paramedics, they were walking in and being intubated shortly thereafter. Wow. So Nancy, as I'm listening to you talk about your experience, particularly in this case with COVID, I can imagine like any leader, you all, not just you, but your whole leadership team must have heard some very difficult messages from your staff to you. And therefore you had to respond back to some difficult topics that often didn't have solutions. Is there anything you want to share about that or any examples of that that come to mind for you? Um, When we were talking about PPE and what PPE we had, 
how much we had on hand, um, what was recommended by the CDC, and what we're using. There were staff that said, you don't care about us. And that really hit home because I really would not want to put a nurse in a situation that I wouldn't go in myself. Yeah. And um, I know they were scared and I know they were upset because we didn't know what was going to happen. And so, you know, I did tell them I cared about them. At one point in time, they really wanted to have Buffon head covers and there was a national shortage. We weren't able to get them and we needed them for the OR and they weren't recommended at the time. And actually CDC was saying there's more opportunity for contamination when they touch the Buffon. So um, we ended up over a couple of weeks period of time, every unit I went on, we want to be able to wear these. We want to be able to wear these. You know, we need to protect our hair. People are coughing on us. And so we uh, approached downtown and said, how about if we allow them to wear their own cloth head covering? Um, they put it on in the morning. They take it off at night. They throw it in the wash. And that really, the staff was so appreciative that we allowed them to do that. And the seamstress among us, not me, um, went and made caps for everyone. But that was one quick win with the staff because I kept pushing, no, don't wear them. It's advised against, you're going to contaminate. And the staff just felt like we weren't listening to them. So allowing them to wear cloth headed coverings to protect their hair, basically, which is what they were concerned about is, you know, they were able to have scrubs, they were able to have shoe covers, which we told them eventually they didn't need shoe covers. And those were also on back order. We needed them for the OR. They were okay if they could leave their shoes here, but their hair, that was a, that was a win for us because that's really what they were concerned about. That was one of those things, but to hear that we didn't care about them and to have somebody take me to the CDC website and show me they're advising that you can wear a scarf. Come on. <laughs> We're listening to them to remind them. I got my PhD. I'm really into evidence-based practice. There were some tough times. Right. Absolutely. Well, what I'm hearing you say is you listened, you looked for a solution, and sometimes a solution had to be a compromise, and right. uh, you were able to find it. I also hear you about that would be like a stake in the heart for you to have nurses that said you didn't care about them uh, for sure. Yeah, that's a challenge. Yeah. We could talk about all of these things forever. Let me let me ask you another thing, if you have an answer for this, looking at the work environment. I mean, there's no doubt that any kind of crisis would be disruptive, um, potentially harmful to the inroads you'd made already related to the work environment. So as things are somewhat better now, you can at least breathe and maybe look at lessons learned and so forth. Have you all thought at all about, are there any things we need to mend around here in terms of ourselves, our team, our, our family that works together, our work environment, um, any chinks in the armor that have taken place that you think going forward, we really need to focus on this? Well, my first year, I made an evaluation that there weren't enough nurses in the ICU. And um, uh, things are done a little bit differently here that there was a staffing plan put together in 2014. And a lot of the labor laws have changed um, since then with family leave. And when people are away from the bedside, you have to backfill. I had put together a proposal that hadn't been submitted uh, for more staff in the ICU. And I had done very thoughtful looking at it to make sure that there was appropriate staffing, not only so people could take vacations and time off, but that they got away on a break. 
because, you know, people would forego their breaks because they didn't have enough staff. Um, in October, I was able to submit a proposal that went through a lot of the literature about retention and recruitment and appropriate staffing and patient safety and a lot of the work that was done. It started with the work that um, AACN did with Beth Ulrich on the the nursing satisfaction survey and healthy work environment relation. But I really was able to come up with some concrete reasons why we needed more staff. And when it was submitted to um, the DHS leadership, the other CEO said we want it too, <laughs> because we have the same issues. You're not saying this October during the pandemic. I had done most of the work the year before the pandemic. Oh. Then I got busy and it kind of went off to the side. But I figured now is the time because they really, the light really shined about the importance of critical care nurses. Sure. Um, and so currently it's with DHS finance. It'll probably go to the board of supervisors soon for a very large um, expansion of the critical care staffing that will give us not only staff to take care of patients, but enough so everybody gets their breaks. So you are the um, only person in the world that I know that could, in the middle of a pandemic, submit <laughs> a proposal to get more staff and probably have it approved. That is just incredible. All about time sometimes. Well, true. Uh, but, you know, we were not closing beds, but I remember going into one of the ICUs and there was a patient on ECMO and on a ventilator and proning. And I said, does that nurse have both those patients? And they said, Dr. Blake, we don't have enough staff. And I said, no, 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 we will find another person and realize that they had been so used to working short-staffed. It was just part of the culture. So the staff had, had very much made it clear to me when I came and I did my meet and greets and rotated from unit to unit that staffing was a huge issue. And you know, our CEO agreed and, and I just needed to come up with the appropriate justification. And like I said, it was perfect timing because September and early October, there was a little bit of a lull. So I was able to finish the work that I had done, just, you know, polish it off, put the bow on it, yes. and then submit it as a business request. The justification is what's going for the entire system, all the hospitals, ICUs, um, to get more staff. Because one hospital was closing beds when they didn't have enough staff. We weren't doing that. We were just continuing to take, and we're a busy trauma center. So, you know, it's not unusual to get multiple trauma patients in a shift. You need to have the staff. And I think what, what I've seen with the emotional distress that the staff has seen in the last year, a break is essential for them to just get away and not have to worry about their patients for, you know, a lunch break and their, you know, two 15-minute breaks, which is what, you know, California labor law is. But 12-hour shift, they get three 15-minute breaks and a half an hour lunch. It's important to at least refresh. Yeah, absolutely. And and hopefully now you're back to where they can have days off or weekends off and truly really revitalize. So that's just an amazing example of how the work you had started prior to, in this case, a pandemic, but I would say any disaster. So you had already focused on that. You were focused on staffing, but Anything else you can think of that you all as a team, and I know you had just been at this location, I think, for a year, you said. So um, other things in the work environment that you had started that kind of paid off during the pandemic in terms of teams or communication or anything. I had brought the nursing leadership team together to really focus on what's best for the organization versus what's best for your service line. 
and really kind of coalesced that group as a group that really understood, I may have to give something up in order to give it to you. And I think an example of that was, you know, when things got really busy on the inpatient, we took some of the outpatient nurses and the docs moved to televisits without a nurse. And some of those nurses who worked the ICU before came back in and helped with staffing. I think people understood a more of a collective we in the organization um, at that point in time. And, you know, that's what I'm all about. We're all one team and it's not me, myself. And I have to say the work that was done, you know, I'm getting a lot of credit for work that my staff did. It was their work that actually, you know, helped us get through this. And, um, you know, allowing people to say, I think we should be doing it this way versus, you know, another way. And giving them a voice because in the past, you know, you need to follow through. You need to show that you're listening. You need to show them that you've heard them. And sometimes implementing some of the things that they've done um, so they really understand you do support them. And that encouraged more people to speak up. Well, it's interesting because as we wrap up, unfortunately, I can't talk to you for the next six hours, which is what I would love to do. But what you're saying makes me think of that now becoming overused phrase of never let a good crisis go to waste. But while there have been a lot of negatives out of this particular pandemic, certainly there have been innovations like we've never even imagined before. That's what you're alluding to. Do you have one or two examples of things that you think you all will probably keep and say, wow, we never knew we could do this, X, Y, Z? but we really don't want to go back to the way it was before. Any good you think you can bring to the future? Well, we actually started shared governance right before this hit. They had been trying to bring on shared governance for a while. And I came on and said, okay, what date? And set a date and we just moved forward. And I said, if, if there are issues, we can work through them, but let's just start. So I think really bringing the voice of the unit practice councils, um, because each unit has a unique thing that they were uh, bringing forward. And I know the emergency department had some things just about the way they do triage, the way they do staffing that they were bringing forward. So really focusing on the unit practice councils. I got them, each unit has a team's line so they can have their UPC meetings, you know, on teams. They can do it from home if they want to, Um, but trying to get both days and nights together and really getting each unit to understand that they're piece of a bigger organization and really driving that. You know, certainly there's a lot of things we learned to build a new building. We weren't going to put that many negative pressure rooms in the new building. (laughs) And infection prevention was trying to make most of it. And I have to say, we converted this building, we converted almost every med surge bed into negative pressure. So I think there's a lot of lessons learned that we'll build into the new facility and be doing phase two with the architects soon um, because they got some general information from the first meeting. So I think there's going to be a lot of changes that occur and a lot more staff participation in that process. They actually really could tell us exactly what they needed to fit up the ED as an ICU. Even the Pixis machines were set up differently than an inpatient Pixis machine. As an administrator, I don't think of that. I see myself at the 10,000 foot level and you need to go to the street to find out exactly what they need. And it's a wise leader that knows that the people who know the most about taking care of the patients are the ones with the hands on the patients, exactly as you say. One last question. Um, 
because I can't stop asking you questions. <laughs> if you had the chance, would you do to say to nurse leaders, here's what this felt like, and here's what I've learned, and here's what I would say to you, other leaders going forward, if you ever find yourself in this situation, is there anything you can think of that you'd want to share? Really knowing that some of these things are completely out of our control. And you can only do the best that you can do. I mean, I saw it in my directors. They wanted to fix all the problems. We could not fix all the problems. And just knowing that we're not perfect and that we may fall down and get back up and we'll do the best we can. And that was the, what I told the staff is I will do the best I can. You know, I think I probably got more credibility with the staff when I got on CNN and said, Nurses are angry because at the beginning of this, it's, oh, nurses are heroes and, and now no one's listening to us. And this was December and, you know, everybody's not wearing masks and they're coming in sick or they're making their grandma sick and grandma's dying. Just saying what people felt when they asked me if I could give an interview, my CEO said they need to hear from the nursing staff and sharing what nurses were dealing with you know, being in a room with an iPad and a dying patient and family wailing on the other side, that wears you down. Yes. You know, I know there's information out there that nurses are leaving the profession. We haven't seen a huge number, but we did have some retirement and people said, I can't do this. I can't put myself and my family at risk. But the moral distress and the issues that the staff went through, we had our Healers Helping Healers team that's a peer debrief working nonstop. So we just put them on different shifts and they went from unit to unit because there were situations. Um, there was a 30 year old that died and she was doing better. And the staff was telling the family, she's getting better. We'll take good care of her. And then she threw a PE. There's nothing you can do for that, but they felt that they failed this family. Sure. Wow. So it was tough. It was really tough. Well, even in tough times, Dr. Nancy Blake, my friend and colleague, I have to say you are truly the most authentic and one of the most inspiring leaders that I know. And I just can't thank you enough for, I don't know how you carve out time to do anything that you do, talking to CNN or just talking to us. It's just been a pleasure to hear a little bit about your experience as the extraordinary leader that you are. Thank oh, you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN CSI Academy, with information available at aacn.org forward slash academy. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.